Hello and welcome to the Psycom Journal Club podcast. In today's episode, we talk about how values can help communications efforts. Hello and welcome to the Psycom JC podcast, your one-stop shop for effective and impactful science communications approaches. At Psycom JC, we aim to help scientists integrate findings from the latest evidence-based research in social sciences and education into their outreach efforts. We curate, summarize and discuss research studies and their applications to real communication contexts in a way that scientists can easily implement. Welcome Heather, Sherry, Maria and hello from me, Nevena. Hello! Hi! So last month we had the pleasure to organize a workshop as part of the AAAS annual conference. Uh, and then that workshop was centered around the use of values in science communication. It was a it was a very nice event, even if I say so myself. <laughs> and I'll just directly jump into the content and give Heather and Maria and Sherry the floor, uh, well, the mics rather, to uh, present a little bit what was that uh, workshop about and uh, how did it go? So we had the honor of presenting a workshop um, at the AAAS conference. Um, and we were really focused on incorporating values into science communication efforts as a way to effectively reach those key audiences, um, especially audiences who are undecided about important issues of science. And so we were inspired to explore this topic really as an approach to help us get around the challenge of maybe you know, some folks not initially engaging with us when we're doing our science communication, or maybe not responding in ways that we would hope that they would in, uh, when we actually try and communicate with them. Yeah, and I just wanted to add uh, how important this discussion is. It's always important, but now we have such a recent clear example of why uh, reaching the undecided population can be so crucial. Obviously, the COVID-19 vaccines. I work, well, I have been working in public opinion research for over three years now, and actually last week was my last. I just switched industries. But of course, I'm still used to taking like a pulse of public sentiment on current events and issues. And we saw in late 2020, uh, we saw that 40 to 50% of all Americans were undecided about getting the vaccine. And I'm talking about research done by Pew and by Kaiser. So you have at least 40% nationally who say they probably will or will not get the vaccine. And from what I've seen right now, it's not not like it's getting much better. I just received uh, a couple of weeks ago our latest public opinion data for Los Angeles County specifically at my previous work. And guess what? The undecided were at about 40% still. And I even looked by date of the survey because it lasted from early January to mid-February. And it wasn't like getting better. It was still at 40% in February. So there's a large portion of the population right now who are not sure about their decision to whether to take the vaccine, which is such a crucial tool in dealing with this pandemic, which is why this topic is, yeah, crucial. Yeah, this is so important in the face of the fact that some places in the United States, people are burning masks, governors are opening mm -hmm. businesses to 100% capacity. Uh, and it is really worrying that 40% of people and I'm assuming this survey was from LA, right, Maria? This is for Los Angeles County. And just so you know, guys, there's probably going to be a link shared with this. The report is like over a hundred of pages. You can look by geography, you can look by demographics and really dive in because, yeah, mm -hmm. it, this is for the entire county. So 10 million people live here. 
Yeah, so that that's really worrying, and uh, it just says that we're not doing an adequate job of reaching out to the undecided, and probably uh, some of it comes from uh, misconceptions we have about uh, the landscape of views about vaccination. Mm-hmm. And the paper that we some uh, that we discussed during. Uh, the presentation, and also there was another paper which we took excerpts from it, both show that our perception of the spectrum of views on vaccination is actually not what is happening. So this paper, which uh, we summarized um, last year, we like to summarize groundbreaking papers, and this paper really, really was groundbreaking in that, uh, in many respects, including our views of the landscape on vaccination. And it was really eye-opening what this uh, paper where Johnson and Ed Al did, they looked at uh, Facebook. They focused their efforts on Facebooks and uh, conversations around uh, vaccination between February and, uh, to October, 2019. That's when the measles vaccine, uh, sorry, the measles outbreak was out there and it was a very hot topic of conversation by all types of people. So they looked at conversations around the topic by uh, by nearly 100 million individuals who were uh, followers of either of the three different pages, uh, different types of pages, the undecided, anti-vax and pro-vax. So what they did, they um, studied uh, interaction between these pages. So the focus, if you like, uh, they were uh, centers of information coming out, these three pages, and then they looked at how they connect with each other. And the connection was made based on whether or not a page owner mentions the name of a different type of page. So uh, there were some really interesting findings. One of the, uh, so I'm just gonna give you a short summary. Uh, One of the most important ones was that the undecided uh, among those 100 million people vastly outnumber the number of people who are pro-vax or anti-vax. So uh, it's not the world doesn't, is not divided into anti-vax and pro-vax. There are a lot of people who have questions. They still have undecided and they are actively seeking out information. They have questions. Another important uh, thing that they do, they, uh, they dived into the different approaches that anti-vax and pro-vax pages uh, take. And there is a dramatic difference and that shows in the effectiveness of the anti-vax pages. So what are some of the key takeaways? Anti-vax pages were more engaged with the undecided pages. So they proactively went out and reached out to people. Uh, Their type of content that they uh, published on their pages were very diverse. They talked about different types of topics related to vaccines. And this is very, very important, especially as related to our topic, because different people relate to the vaccine issue from different points of view. Whereas the pro-vaccination pages were very monolithic. And then during this time, anti-vaccination pages showed the highest amount of growth. 
And in terms of size, the uh, anti-vaccination pages had, that had smaller audiences grew the most. Um, and then uh, they, based on this data, they made a, created a simulation and their simulation um, concluded that if this type of, this difference in the type of outreach by anti-vax and pro-vax pages, if this keeps going on, if we don't change something, then uh, in 10 years, anti-vaccination pages will dominate the Facebook landscape. Now, some of you may think, well, Facebook is removing anti-vaccination pages. Is this really relevant? Well, I think it is because this parallels the approaches that anti-vaccine folks take uh, in real life. And there are also a lot of people who don't necessarily, a lot of pages, they don't represent themselves necessarily as anti-vax, but they kind of smuggle in those anti-vaccine ideas while they do their outreach. And thank you, Sherry, for this summary of this paper. And uh, I'm going to share a link again to the previous podcast episode when we talked about it a bit more in depth. So that would just present us uh, yet another to how to better communicate with audiences when we need to do that. And what would those better ways be then? Yeah, so we can learn a lot from this study um, and based on what we know about good communication. So first of all, we need to gain a more accurate picture of the debate over a given issue. And these communication tips that we're giving you isn't only applying, it's not only applicable to the vaccine debate, it's in general about any scientific topic. So get a clearer picture of the debate and what are the different places people are coming from at the debate? What are the underlying issues? Take the time to listen to and understand the undecided population. They are the majority. Um, and they're a very crucial audience. Uh, we also need to take care to distinguish between legitimate skepticism versus denialism. And those who have legitimate skepticism have questions, uh, they are the majority. Um, so denier, outright deniers who won't listen to just anything are a minority. We need to proactively reach out and avoid a monolithic message. Um, one type of message doesn't fit all audiences and we need to connect our message with our audience's values. But what exactly do we talk about when we talk about values here? So interestingly, there's not necessarily one agreed upon definition of values within the social sciences, but Broadly thinking about values, think about what's really important to you at the core, like truly deeply fundamental. So maybe think about a time that you were influenced by a message. Maybe it was something that you saw like an advertisement online or maybe a political message. What resonated with you? What did you pay attention to in that message? For example, when Biden expressed support about for science, in addressing the COVID-19 pandemic, climate change and other issues, maybe how did that make you feel? Did you perk up? So back to the question about what are values? Well, the best definition, at least in my opinion, uh, of values is really values are concepts or beliefs that transcend specific situations. So we might think about values as being those special core beliefs that help us organize our other lower level beliefs. 
But what shapes those values, Heather? So values can actually serve as motivation for our decision-making and certainly our behaviors. And actually they can help us prioritize things by levels of importance. And our values play an important role in shaping our views on our issues. And our values may come from how we've lived, um, groups that we're a part of, um, or some sort of social identity that we hold near and dear to ourselves or self-identity that we hold near and dear. So when we talk about values-based communication, we're actually referring to the match between values embedded in the message and the values that are important to the people who we're targeting with that message. So as science communicators, our goal in communicating really is to go activate the values that our audience cares about, that's relevant and that's salient to the issue or the communication context in which we're communicating. Okay, but and that makes sense, actually, obviously. But how would I go about that if I want to use values in my science communication? And that's efforts? the magic question. <laughs> so <laughs> even though one of our main goals of science, as science communicators is to get people to understand the importance of the science or the scientific issue that we're talking about, it may take some work for people to be at the point of being able to tune in and to process this information, especially when it's more complex or it may be something that's more uncomfortable for them or unfamiliar. And so again, that speaks to why we're talking about folks who are undecided. And people may rely on their values though as one of the ways that they make sense of these more complex or challenging issues to help them figure out what they think. And so the values may assist in establishing a sense of shared understanding and helping to build rapport with our audience so that we can build those connections with them and help us establish trust with them, which is really the first piece of effective communication is making sure that we're establishing trust and, and rapport with our audience there. So embedding values that are important to our audience in our communication indicates that we know something about our audience and also what they care about and this can help us get their attention and keep their attention and hopefully get them to think more deeply and engage with what we're saying. Thank you, Heather. That's, ah, that's a lot of work again <laughs> to put in, but obviously it has to be done. And one way to actually start putting in the work is something that we did during the workshop at AAAS. Uh, we had a short breakout room sessions uh, during the workshop where the participants were given uh, a handout uh, with a couple of example scenarios where uh, a science communication intervention was potentially warranted. Um, it was, uh, it also contained a very helpful guide, like uh, guiding questions, what to ask ourselves first to kind of evaluate the situation and understand better the, the audience of each uh, scenario. And uh, a very nice um, a summary of what values are and how they can be used in science communication to kind of help us start thinking at least in the direction of using values for science communication. So each group uh, could select one uh, scenario and basically try to uh, approach it as if it was a real uh, life situation to evaluate or to select or to establish what kind of values we in the group potentially would be sharing with the people in that scenario uh, that we could use potentially to, to start a conversation and to understand better um, their views in the context of, of um, that hypothetical uh, situation and to imagine a route uh, to connecting with them, try and address the issue at hand that was in that scenario. 
Uh, it's very nice because this uh, handout, it's actually available f- uh, free of charge. Uh, you just have to drop us a message on Twitter at SciComJC and um, we'll urge you to reach out and do that. Give the scenarios a try. Think about it. Try to answer the little questions. Share your ideas on Twitter with us so we can actually have that conversation continuously going about uh, what kind of different values and what is the best way to use the values. Sorry, the values in these different examples. Or if you even uh, if you think of an example yourself that you have a real life example at hand, then you would like to try to approach it from the aspect of uh, value-based communication, um, it would be a very nice conversation to have with uh, our Twitter community. Um, So, but because we don't have (laughs) that uh, handout in a podcast format, how do we header start with incorporating values in our science communication? So (laughs) just before I dive into a couple of quick tips to take away on using values in your science communication, you know, it was fun to hear the discussions um, in our our breakout groups during the workshop over these uh, science communication scenarios where folks had to identify value, like the value that they decided to use um, and what would be important to their audience and then craft messages around that that incorporate those values. Um, And it was really an interesting discussion. I I think, you know, the challenge with values-based communication and talking about values is that they're these sort of nebulous things, right? Like you can't, you know, see, taste, or touch them, right? So um, it makes it a little harder sometimes, I think, to think about it. And then because there's not that clear definition, um, it's, you know, it's a bit more challenging. But I think, One of the first tips, I guess, you know, having given this workshop and and doing this kind of work is to step away. I think as science communicators, we need to step away sometimes and think about ourselves first and sort of what we bring to the table. So what are our personal values? What are our, you know, how do we approach this? What What do we find compelling? because values are wrapped up and embedded in a lot of different kinds of messages. Again, um, I use advertising as an example a lot. Um, Values are critical to advertiser success in reaching us and changing our minds on things. So if you guys have examples of ads that you think really touch on those values, share them on Twitter. If you have other examples of messaging that really reaches out and connects with people at that fundamental core value, core level, you know, share it on Twitter. Those are examples I think that we would learn from. But to your question, Navenna, what takeaway tips, crunchy tips can we use to incorporate values into our science communication? Well, the first tip is we have to know who our audience is, who our target audience is. And I want to be really clear about this. The answer is not everybody or the general public. I think sometimes that's a misunderstanding uh, that we can talk to the entire public at one time. We can't. So I think it's important to remember and what Sherry had said at the beginning is that, you know, one size messaging does not fit all people. So the more specific we can be about who we want to target in our science communication, the better, because when we talk about targeted messaging, that requires a targeted audience. And to do that though, we also need to know some things about our audience so that we can start figuring out how to effectively craft our messages for them, right? So if we're, especially when we're talking about values-based communication, 
we have to know something about what they care about, right? So when we talk about folks who are undecided on say, because we've been talking about vaccines here today, you know, on the issue of vaccines, what is it that their underlying concerns for them? What are they concerned about? What are they interested in? What are they worried about? Where are those questions coming from? We need to know that. We need to know what motivates them. And then we can connect that to maybe some of those underlying values that you think might be important to those folks that you're trying to reach. So the big piece of that though, is how do we get that information, right? And this is probably your best tip. <laughs> and the one that I feel like we have to repeat <laughs> over and over sometimes uh, is we get that information by listening to folks. And it's how we gain insight into our audience, who they are, what they are concerned about and what they ultimately value. Sure. Uh, so again, I want to extend the importance of an overlap between your audience's values and the information you are trying to convey. So your message marries those two things. And again, I want to overemphasize the value of listening um, and being patient and just sit back and listen and listen to what people have to say. Don't have the tendency to correct them or uh, give them a statistic um, or show them because that's what a lot of people do on social media. Somebody's wrong on internet, I have to correct them. <laughs> but yeah, so one thing I personally do a lot of time, I spend a lot of time on Facebook following pages who spread misinformation um, or pages where people have questions. And I just, I just read what they have to say and try to understand them with people in my life. I sit down and listen to what they have to say and try to try different strategies to uh, try to get them to understand the science behind all sorts of topics. So during our presentation, in order to, uh, to kind of better elaborate what we mean, by value-based communication, we gave some examples. An example was a person who refuses to wear a mask. And they're, they're coming from their message is, well, you should do what is good for your family and I'll do what I think is best for me. And when you hear that, you need to spend, step aside and kind of spend some time and ask, well, where is this view coming from? Are they just refusing because, because they don't understand? Are they like, do they lack intelligence or is it coming from somewhere else? And a lot of times such a view comes from the deep held values by someone who really appreciate and uh, the central guiding value in their life is having choice, having an individual uh, freedom of making their own choices. So when you encounter to um, somebody like this, if you, for example, your response is wear a mask to protect others, that's not going to fly with their values because they don't care about others. They, the thing that they mostly value uh, that guides their life is their own individual freedom of choice. Or some people may say, well, CDC recommends wearing masks because data shows it prevents the spread of COVID-19. And a lot of times, Again, if you listen to how these, uh, some of these points of view, um, many of the people who really, 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 their central focus is having individual choice, personal freedom, 
they don't want a government authority or a health uh, expert or health organization to tell them what they need to do with their personal lives every day. So data isn't going to help CDC saying that this authoritative or whatever someone organization with power is suggesting that you do it isn't going to apply. So what is a good way of maybe more effective to do it? One thing you can do is try to use their own logic because um, you've been listening to them and now you understand their logic. Use their own logic and try to get them to see the flaw in their logic. So in this example, you can illuminate a scenario of behavior they would not tolerate by another family. So it would be another family who's who is deciding that there is something they want to do within their, the four walls of their house, uh, and it's their individual choice. So if the value of this person refusing to wear a mask is uh, valid, then they should be okay with this scenario too. And the example that we used was our family plays electric guitar and we choose to practice late into the night. Uh, so you can, you can play electric guitar or not, or you can decide to play, to listen to music or not. It is our choice of our family to play electric guitar and practice it in the evening. Would you find that acceptable? I think that's a great example, Sherry. And I, I love the, the sort of absurdity of like, we want to rock out in the middle of the night. Like that's a, <laughs> that sort of made me laugh actually when I, when I saw that example and when I heard it. But I, you know, I, I think it's really important. I just want to reemphasize some of what you said is, you know, it's not necessarily that someone's, you know, one, one value is better than another. It's not that it's about this ordering of importance, right? Values shape how we see the world and what we think is most important to us. And so it's not necessarily that someone doesn't care about other people. It just means that they, their personal choice uh, ranks maybe at least in that context. Um, that is the, you know, predominant important, you know, consideration, at least, you know, in, in the context that I think most people are thinking maybe about the mask issue, for example. And so I think it's one of those things that we keep in mind is that we're not necessarily judging the values, but we're, we're just understanding that those core, you know, foundational beliefs, those things that people hold to be important, they really do shape how folks approach the world, how they behave, and the lenses at which they see these issues through. And so that way we can better shape our messages to be much more targeted, to talk to folks and meet them where they are, as you expressed in your example. Yeah, and if, if you, yeah, and if you tell them that their values that they hold really dear, if you tell them it's wrong, uh, and they become defensive and they won't, they won't listen to you. So it's really, really important. And I wanted to also add something that, uh, Aside from values, sometimes the, the really problem comes to someone just not having enough information. There are, especially it's really important at this point where people have lots of questions and really genuinely want to know what they have to do, what is the best thing for them to do, whether or not they should go see their grandma or when should they get the vaccine, what vaccine they need to take. So it's important that we do not brand people in one way or another in terms of not understanding or whatever you want to call them. Just, they just don't know. So um, it's important that we keep that, 
keep that in mind that uh, transferring of knowledge could be part of your strategy. So because people can, in Psycom, they can be a little bit too dogmatic about the deficit model. They say, well, it's not enough just to share information, da, 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 da. So uh, some people kind of maybe take it to the extreme and they just, they leave uh, transfer of knowledge out that factor, but that factor is really important. Not only you have to care about people's values, but, but basing your point of view on vacuum is not gonna work. People have to know certain, certain information in order to make it. And I think it's also important for folks to feel like they're heard, right? I mean, you, you talked about this at the beginning, Sherry, about that folks really have questions, especially because we're, you know, at least in this workshop, we were talking about people who are undecided about, you know, issues of, you know, certain issues of science. And again, just because you're undecided about one thing doesn't mean you're undecided about another. Um, But it, it's about holding space, I think. And again, that's where I think some of the anti-vax communication has been successful is that folks feel like they can be authentically curious. They can ask those questions that, you know, they aren't sure if they're the right questions or maybe they feel kind of stupid asking them. Like it's a safer space, right? You're talking about folks who are approachable uh, to ask questions to, to have those discussions, to really, to be authentic. And I think as science communicators, that is really important for us to be approachable, for us to be accessible, and for us to be human at the end of the day. And I think that's where this idea of using values in our communication and thinking about our communication from, from that place really lends itself to building those much deeper connections. Um, because look at the state of the world right now. I think a lot of us are uncertain about a lot of things right now, to be quite honest. I know I am, and I'll just speak for myself mm-hmm. on that. But, you know, there are a yeah. lot of things that I don't know yeah. about or that I'm unsure about or that, hell, I'm undecided about. So I, I think that's something that maybe, you know, moving forward mm-hmm. in this current time, particularly, we want to explore more. And, um, you know, I don't know in science communication if the idea of values and values-based communication has come up a lot, but I'm wondering if that's something that, you know, may be worth exploring further. Yeah, and, and I was, I'm wondering, you guys, I didn't go to a breakout session. What kind of feel did you get from participants this, did this concept of incorporating values was surprising to them? Were they struggling with it? Uh, Well, I went to one of the breakout rooms and we actually picked one of the other scenarios that was about um, potentially allowing drilling in an area of Alaska. I can read it. Oh, go ahead. An Alaskan resident supports opening their shores to oil drilling because it creates jobs. Yeah. So it, it was very nice, actually, because it took our group a couple of minutes of awkward silence, like what am I supposed to be able to say or ask this person at all? <laughs> but then once mm-hmm. you actually start thinking about it and look at the guiding questions and the, the summary of, of value-based communica- communication in the handout, it becomes very clear how easy it can be if you think and if you ask the right questions to connect with someone based on values because this person in that scenario hypothetical scenario it's not someone who is a vessel who carries that one idea about uh, economic um, advancement of their area based on 
uh, offshore drilling. No, they have, a, they, they, as you both mentioned earlier, they care about a lot of things. They care about their community. Maybe that's what that's one of the reasons why they want to make sure that their community has a stable financial uh, income provided by a certain activity, whether that particular one or another. They, they care about the independence of their community. If, if we sit and, and think about and, and talk and ask questions to the people that we think we have nothing in common, <laughs> we'd be actually incredibly surprised in the beginning, afterwards you get used to it, <laughs> how many mm -hmm. common values we could potentially be sharing with those people and how much more easy it is to, to have an honest human conversation and if asked for information, provide that information. If not, just understand the people's concerns and, and worries and maybe potentially try to approach the conversation from, from there. And I think Heather went yeah. to... Um, to another breakout session? I did. I actually got to participate, which was super cool. I was very excited about this. So, so, so our group actually looked at the first scenario, which if y'all look at the handout, if you're interested, um, or our Twitter moments, which are posted online as well from our Twitter chat on this. Um, our scenario said that a young woman who supports mitigating climate change shares a post on Facebook that questions the safety of vaccines. Now our group chose this one because it was really interesting, right? You have the situation of a person who, you know, supports the scientific consensus in one domain, but is not unsure about that in the other domain. And so our group conversation really emphasized looking at and connecting those values of climate change, like where she supports climate change and seeing if we could bring that into some of the messaging that we might use to talk about vaccines. And so we had talked about care and concern for humanity was sort of a trans, you know, a value that transcended both of those issue domains. And so that's where our group kind of came in. And I thought that was a really interesting approach and a really interesting idea. And another piece of our conversation was in addition to that sort of transfer of values across those issue domains, is there a way that we as like the science communicators could connect our own values as well? Because, you know, say, I, you know, I mean, obviously um, I am a big environmentalist, I support, you know, addressing climate change. And so could I also incorporate some of my own values to establish that sense of rapport, that, that shared understanding, that sense of connection and that way we can have a better discussion about the safety of vaccines in this particular scenario. Yeah, that's a, that was an interesting scenario. Actually, it's one that I personally encountered. Um, and the approach I took with her was um, trying to make her to see, I don't know how, well, I mean, you can never change anybody's mind in one go. But I try to understand why is it that she supports one type of scientist and another. And she had a really, um, how do you say, the, what Jonathan Haidt calls moral dumbfounding, mean that, meaning that you believe in something, but you don't know why. So she, it really got her thinking about, well, why am I supporting one set of scientists, one type of science and another? And on Facebook, I follow them. They before the pandemic, they were actually really anti-vaccine, but now actually, uh, I, at least I know her, her and her mother. I know her mother um, 
actually got vaccinated. So um, it's good to see one. I mean, it was good to see that, but that was a very interesting scenario. And I think that approach that she takes probably comes from, like you, Heather, said about uh, valuing purity um, and also some sentiment against big corporations. Oh, I didn't, I was gonna say, I, you know, that's so interesting. I didn't realize that like that scenario was actually based on like a real life interaction that you had, Sherry. Are the other two yeah. scenarios that were presented mm -hmm. in the workshop, are those based on real life experiences too? Were those totally hypothetical? Well, uh, an Alaskan resident that supports opening the shores to oil line because of jobs, that's, that's what's going on in Alaska right now. That's why, uh, you know, it's, it's a red state. And I actually, um, we went to Alaska for vacation once and this person who was our guide, he was, uh, he was from military and then they were having a conversation with my son and he was taking us for these RV big car routes through wilderness in Alaska. And he was saying that he doesn't believe uh, scientists when they talk about climate change. And part of that was because it would that having that point of view meant he couldn't be driving these these cars as his job um, giving tours because basically what he was doing was polluting the environment so it doesn't and so that that's one aspect of it so the, that scenario three the Alaska scenario is is real um, and it's everywhere let's see a couple have children who are up to date with their child vaccine, but they're hesitant about COVID-9. That's also very common. I see that a lot in- um, So I'm curious to know, these are, these are sure. actually great real life scenarios then. I'm curious to know from our listeners, if maybe they would be willing to share on Twitter or our other social media platforms, maybe some real experiences that might be used as exercises for this in the future. Yeah. Absolutely. Navena, you wanted to say something? Yeah, well, you both touched upon uh, something very interesting from Heather's breakout group, but also especially from your um, real life examples, Sherry, that oftentimes it's much more valuable both to understand your audience, but also to um, stimulate them to consider their own beliefs um, and convictions. Yeah to ask questions. And this is something that also came up during the Twitter chat that we did after the AAAS workshop on the same topic. It came up actually from one of our Twitter followers that joined the chat, Thomas Crow, shout out. <laughs> uh, he pointed out that his favorite way of um, starting a conversation with uh, his audience that potentially could hold very different beliefs than his is to use this guided questioning approach that helps people uh, reach conclusions potentially on their own. But more importantly, as I mentioned, shows them that sometimes they, they do hold on to beliefs without actually really knowing why. Maybe they were just raised with those beliefs or uh, somehow they're culturally uh, a prop well culturally adopted them without necessarily putting uh, the thought that um, rationally goes into uh, considering them and some people call this the Socratic method so it, very shortly it says that a teacher would never deliver the pre-chewed wrapped in a nice bowl knowledge to uh, their student but would rather just keep asking them questions that allow the student to reach to the knowledge themselves 
So this can much can be much more valuable for science communication approach as a science communication approach as well. We're part of one uh, because if someone reaches a certain conclusion themselves by considering it themselves, they're much more prone as well to actually um, stick to that conclusion and adopt it as yeah. a belief of their own. Yeah, it's a great teaching method as well. And I remember how this conversation came up because uh, one of my favorite podcasts is uh, uh, The Hidden Brain. Uh, and one of the episodes was that this girl was describing how her violin teacher was teaching her. And instead of telling her how to better play violin, the teacher would ask her, what do you think you can do better? And guided her to come up with the answer herself. And this is something I also do when I teach uh, during what we call active learning. And uh, sometimes scientists, uh, sorry, sometimes students find it really uncomfortable, uh, but, and it's painful, but man, is this a great way to learn? Because, and I tell them when I put them through this um, in front of the whole class, I keep repeating, don't worry about it. Uh, I know this is painful. I know it hurts, but that's how you learn. You kind of find your way into the solution by making mistakes. Mm -hmm. And it's uncomfortable usually oftentimes because if at all we get a, a tutor or a teacher to have that kind of approach to teaching, it, at least in my experience, is usually later in life when you've spent already 10, 12, I don't know how many years in school being thought in this very much knowledge deficit model. So I'm just going to tell you the facts and you should remember them mm -hmm. <laughs> one way or another yeah. so then it's very difficult yeah. if you spend the first say 18 years of your life being thought that way to suddenly be confronted with having to think for yourself but really from scratch yeah. <laughs> to be able to reach to a conclusion but if you do it a yeah. couple of times in a couple of courses it gradually of course becomes much more uh, familiar way of doing it and it actually is much more pleasant to I think there's a big well. piece of that that you know what yeah. you're saying is that we we all of us need to get more comfortable with the idea of questioning our beliefs right because these, these come mm. from you know yeah as yeah. you said how we were raised coming from our community from our culture comes from a variety of sources and we just sort of observe these things and learn these things you know early on and so as we get older as we're exposed to new information it's about questioning or re-looking at those things more critically and saying does this still serve me does this make sense for me is this in alignment with other things that i think are important well um, in order to wrap this conversation a little bit up, I'm just going to remind our listeners, if you want to get the handout, just drop us a message on Twitter at SciComJC and ask us for it. We're more than happy to share it with you. And we'd be most grateful if you share um, your take on the scenarios or if you come up, as we mentioned earlier, with a scenario of your own and potentially a way to approach that scenario so we can have a conversation. Yeah, I just wanted to point out that it's at SciComm underscore JC. Oh, sorry. Okay. So that's all the time we had for today. Thank you to my wonderful co-host as usual. Make sure to follow us. Thank you, <laughs> Make sure to follow us on Twitter at SciComm underscore JC to participate and to get more information about upcoming events, Twitter chats and podcasts. You can also go to our website www.psychomjc.org for even more content and to get in touch. 
Subscribe to our newsletter to receive updates on all upcoming events, chats, podcast releases, summaries of papers that don't always necessarily make it to the podcast or to the Twitter chat. Again, this is www.psychomjc.org. This podcast is recorded by the Psychom JC team. It's produced and edited by Mina Vena Christosova and our music is from Audio Jungle. Thank you for joining this 20th episode of the Psychom JC podcast. A little Woo! celebration here. Woohoo! Yeah. <laughs> Especially since we put our hearts and our hearts into it. Absolutely. So if you liked it, let us know. We'll be happy to hear it. If you didn't like it, let us know how we can improve it. But definitely share it with your friends. And until next time, stay nerdy.